You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're uh, thankful that you're here this morning. Thank you to our guests for joining us. Uh, we are walking through our year-long series through the Gospel of Mark. We're getting really close to the end as the end of our year, year is approaching. What we saw previously is that Jesus and his disciples share a Passover meal together. They are together. They're eating together. They're dialoguing together. They're praying together. Even verse 26 tells us that they sing a hymn together. But there's a transition in the story here. 
Things have darkened. Jesus is entering into what is known as the dark night of the soul. He's alone in the garden of Gethsemane. And really to to capture the feel of this, we have to understand how still and how eerie this this night is. There's no sounds of feast. There's no sounds of singing. If you're just quiet enough, just quiet enough, shh. You, you can hear the heavy breathing of some so-called dedicated disciples sleeping in the distance. The garden is quiet, and most distressing and troubling of all, heaven is quiet, painfully quiet. No booming voice from God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, like we heard at the baptism of Jesus or at the Mount of Transfiguration. There is no response. It's, it's, it's quiet. Heaven is shut up. Dreadful silence as the disciples fail Jesus as the Father denies him his request. But this dark and quiet night is actually speaking to us if we're willing to listen. Telling us some things about Jesus and telling us some things about ourselves if we're willing to sort of face that darkness together today. What I believe we need to do to understand this passage is, like much of the Christian life, we have to look to the conclusion and work backwards in the story. Look at me in verse 51 through 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, this little note here about this young man running away panicked and naked, has meaning. It's packed with meaning, in fact. For one, the story of Gethsemane is recorded across all the Gospels, but this specific note is found only in Mark, which leads a lot of commentators to believe that this young man that runs away naked is Mark himself, who would have been the only one that left to tell the story about it. But more importantly, the language of this very of this scene is very reminiscent of another scene in the Bible. Running from the garden naked. Does that sound familiar? See, Mark is signaling to another garden mentioned in the Bible, a garden not called Gethsemane, but a garden called Eden, where humanity's loyalty towards God was, was tested and they failed. And as a result, Adam and Eve flee from the presence of God naked and ashamed. So this passage is illustrating something for us, and it's this, that humanity is destined to repeat the patterns over and over and over again unless someone steps in to break open the old, worn-out patterns of human failure. You're going to just keep doing the same things over and over again with the same results, generation after generation, unless someone intercedes. So this, I believe, is what Mark is doing here. He's showing us the contrast between humanity failing and Jesus prevailing. So I'm going to give you my conclusion now. I'm going to give you my thesis statement, and we'll work through this. And here's the title of this morning's message, Where Humanity Fails, Jesus Prevails. Amen? Where humanity fails, Jesus prevails. Let's look first at this first point, humanity fails. Now, at the beginning of the year, I read an article in the New York Times about a woman in her 70s named Jo Cameron, a Scottish woman, who never experienced physical pain or emotional distress, ever. 
And this is a true story. In her 70s, she finally had the opportunity of making sense of why all throughout her life she didn't experience and feel pain. And so she was sat down, she was being interviewed by a number of doctors, and they're asking about portions of her life, and she begins to tell the story of when she was a child. She would, you know, cut herself or scrape herself, but it wouldn't hurt, and it would often heal without a scar. She told the story of having hand surgery and then immediately coming, uh, you know, waking up and not feeling any pain, not requiring any medicine. Uh, She described her childbirth. Some of you women are going to hate this story. She described her childbirth experience as, quote, a slight tickle. She's a liar. Everyone's saying that. On top of all this, she said she never experienced anxiety ever. And what they did was they, they took her through a, a series of anxiety tests to determine whether or not she experienced anxiety, and she kept coming back with a score of zero. She never felt fear, pain, depression, emotional anguish, none of it. And so as medicine and science evolved, what they determined was as it was a rare genetic mutation on a gene called FAAH or F-A-A-H-O-U-T, fallout, and they were able to explain why this woman had not experienced these things. And as I read this article, I thought to myself, that's the life. That's what I'm talking about. And it made me consider, why, why does this life that she lived sound so appealing? I had this sort of existential moment. You know, why do I feel real jealousy right now when I'm reading this story? And here was the simple conclusion, the best conclusion I could come up with. It's because I'm human. And humans instinctually avoid pain. Pain is the response of the nerves in our body, the body's way of alerting uh, our brain and our body that there's a problem, warning us that we're moving in the wrong direction. So you touch a hot pan, what's the response? You jolt in the opposite direction. Or if you're straightening or curling your hair, you touch your scalp, there's a jolt away. All these different responses, the heart, the st- I'm sorry, the heat, the, the sting, the fright, these are all responses in order to preserve the self, in order to survive. Humans naturally seek to avoid suffering. It's why in certain difficult circumstances we will fight if we determine that we can fight our way out of it. We'll flight if we determine we cannot fight our way out of it. Or we faint. We freeze and we just faint. All very human responses we see represented here in Mark chapter 14. As Jesus faces his hour of temptation, the time has come. It's all been leading up to this. He gives his disciples a very clear instruction. He says this, verse 34. Remain here, right here, and watch. Stay and stay awake. And what do we see? Fleeing, falling asleep, and fighting. And, and so let, let's look at those marks of human failure one at a time. What, the first mark of human failure we see illustrated here is fleeing. Fleeing. Now, a moment that is seared in my memory, and probably will always be, is April 20th, 1999. And the days following, as the news of the Columbine High School shooting began to circulate, I was a teenager, 
in school at the time, and I remember for whatever reason, it just impact, impacted me and, and hit close to home. And I, I remember thinking to myself, with the same sort of foolish confidence that Peter has here, that if I was under the gun, and it was my moment, I would stand strong. You see, there were, there were two stories circulating around this time about two young ladies that uh, defended their faith and claimed to believe in God at, at the moment when they were under the gun. And I remember reading that and thinking, I would stand strong for Jesus too. I would, I would die for the name of Jesus if it came down to it. But the, stat, the sad story is this, is that the rest of my teenage years and even into my adulthood said otherwise. Even without the threat of death surrounding my life, the pressures of death upon me, I fell away. I failed. I fled from Jesus. And the truth is, we are probably all a lot more like Peter and the rest of the disciples than we'd like to believe. We, we, we assure ourselves that even if they all fall away, I will not. They will all deny you, God. I will stand strong. Even if I must die for you, I will not deny you. And I love this. Mark says, and they all said the same. Peter's like, hey, I'm going to stand with you. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're with Peter. But at the end of the night, what do we see? Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, we will all stand by your side. We're your boys. We're here to the end. Ride or die. In a matter of hours, whew, gone. We have our best intentions, and, and I know we have our minds made up about our own lives. That when we face our moment of triumph, when push comes to shove, we will stand strong as people of conviction. We will stand boldly for Jesus. But when it comes down to it, we all need to be honest right now for just a moment. When it comes down to it, we're all scared. At the end of the day, and I hope this releases a bit of a burden for you today because you're sitting around a bunch of people that are scared too. At the end of the day, we're just a bunch of people that are trying to survive and really afraid about life and really afraid about the threats that surround us. At the end of the day, we're very helpless. And it doesn't matter how strong you are. In fact, if anything, I think the stronger you think you are, the more susceptible you become. At the end of the night, it says they all fled, and so have we. They all fled, and so have we. Now, what do I mean? Well, the prophet Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, says this. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We, like sheep, have all gone astray, every single one of us. Or as the scriptures describe, we have all sinned. And at the heart of this sin, this going astray, is us fleeing. And this fleeing nature, prone to wonder, as we, as we sing earlier, this, this temptation to flee, it manifests itself in multiple ways in our lives. First and foremost, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we flee from God. What do we see Adam and Eve doing after they sin? They run and they hide in the trees. What are many of us doing today? We're running from God. Maybe out of fear, maybe out of shame, maybe out of guilt, maybe even for some of us out of anger. We flee from God. We also flee from one another. 
What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They attempted to cover themselves with fig leaves out of shame. Many of us are living in sort of ways where we are isolating ourselves from one another, not willing to be fully known, living with masks, living with the facade. And ultimately, we flee from difficulty. We find ways to avoid the suffering that is inherent to being human. The suffering that just comes along with being alive. And we do this with, through a number of ways. We do this through escaping. We do this through medicating. We do this through vices. We do this through blame shifting. We do this through simply leaving behind our responsibilities or even procrastinating. The human experience is marked by fleeing. Another mark that we see here of human failure is falling asleep. Verses 37 through 38, and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That resonates with anyone. It resonates with me. I had this friend who could fall asleep anywhere and typically sitting up. And so I'd walk up and I'd say, hey, Dave, what are you doing? He'd be like, every time, oh, I'm just praying, just praying. And I'd say, sure, Dave, how was that prayer? He, maybe he was praying. But what we see here is a connection between wakefulness and prayer. Eyes open, alert, and prayer. And a connection between falling asleep and indulging the flesh. And indulging the flesh. When Jesus says, stay awake, he means, stay alert. When Jesus says, stay awake, he means, stay present to God. Stay vigilant towards God. Why? Because the saint that's caught sleeping will be the saint that's caught slipping. Don't we see this illustrated in Peter in that? And when it matters most, you'll be driven by the impulses of the flesh rather than the prompting of the spirit. Why? Because you've been indulging and gratifying the desires of the flesh. You've been feeding the flesh. And when it matters most, that is what will control. Again and again, he finds them asleep, unaware of the severity of the times, oblivious to their own weakness, seeking to gratify the desires of the flesh, and like so many of us today, indifferent to the need to stay alert and to stay present to God in any and every moment of wakefulness. If there's ever been a diagnosis for the 21st century person, and there's ever been a diagnosis for the 21st century church, in a culture that's being lulled to death by the constant stream of noise, it's this. They were asleep. He was asleep. She was asleep. The church was asleep. What is the next generation going to say about the church today? Probably this. They were sleepy. They transitioned their lives from being marked by busyness to being constantly tired. One more key mark of human failure that we've got to see here, and we've got to dwell on some of these things here because Mark leaves some significant real estate here to human failure. 
The third mark of human failure is this, fighting for control. Verses 46 through 47, and they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Dude's going Mike Tyson on the high priest's servant now, duking it out. Now, the disciples, at least one of them, are trying to fight their way out of something that is clearly outside of their control. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you do when things don't go your way? There are some things that may not apply today. This is something that applies to everyone. Things don't go your way. I hope they told you that. And the question is, what do you do in those moments? What do you do when things go outside of your grasp, go outside of your control? If you're like most people, we try to take control of the situation. We take matters into our own hands. We exert our will on things and on people to make things happen. Whether it's more overt, maybe you're like the bulldog person that sort of lashes out and gets your way. Or maybe it's more manipulative. You give people the silent treatment. You're more patient. You dig in your heels. We will often fight until things go our way. And the question for us is why do we have this tendency to take matters into our own control? Why are we such control freaks? And there's a number of reasons illustrated in this passage for us. The first is this that we disregard God's word. Why, do we, why are we control freaks? Because we're disregarding God's word. If you've been paying attention, and I hope you have, all throughout Mark, Jesus has said in no uncertain terms, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen when we get there. Son of man is going to be delivered over. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be mocked. They're going to kill him. On the third day, he will rise. And every time there's a sense of shock, like what is going on? What is going on? Jesus is like, I told you. I told you. But here's Jesus' disciple. Now, Mark doesn't say who. John just throws him under the bus. He's like, it was Peter. (laughs) So here's Peter with sword in hand, allowing his emotions and pride to drive him, not Jesus' words. So let me ask you this question. What voice are you hearing when difficult circumstances arise in your life? Because if it's not Jesus' voice, if it's not Jesus' words, something will step in to fill that void. Now, the truth is, there are some battles that you should fight. And there are battles that you shouldn't. But how are you going to know? Are you seriously going to just lean on your gut reaction? Because if you're like me, I can't trust my gut reaction. Trust your gut. What? My, like, physically speaking, my gut's not even healthy. I can't, like, trust it with my soul. If you allow that knee-jerk reaction to guide you rather than God's word, you will find yourself in unnecessary trouble often. Trust me. Trust Peter. Also, we underestimate God's ability. Why, why are we such control freaks? Because we are underestimating God's ability. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. 
And I will always try to control the situations that I believe that God is incapable of controlling. And at the heart of 100%, and I'm not exaggerating, 100% of my tendencies to control people and to control situations and try to fight my way out of difficulties, a lack of trust. A lack of trust in God's goodness, a lack of trust in God's power, a lack of trust in God's involvement in my life. We got to settle something here. God doesn't need your help for fulfilling his plan for you. Full stop. He doesn't need you. Here's the grace of God. He invites you into that plan. He's not depending on you. He's not depending on you. When we're standing next to the king of kings, like Peter here, you got to settle something. Is it Jesus that needs your help or is it you that needs his? I think some of us are carrying that heavy burden thinking that Jesus needs our help. Feel the release. Put your sword away. Jesus don't need you. Here's the other side of this coin. Not only are we underestimating God's ability, but here's the real prideful part. We are overestimating our own ability. Overestimating our own ability. Why do we take situations and try to take and control these situations? It's because we have an inflated view of ourselves. No one thinks higher of us than us. And we have convinced ourselves that we are much more capable and wise than God is. And that we are the only ones in the world fit to fulfill the job. Peter is living out what we often think. So Peter knows that Jesus is somehow the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, and therefore redemption for the globe. And here he stands next to the Messiah, convinced that the fate of the world rests in his hands. It all hinges on me. No, it doesn't, Peter. And no, it doesn't, friend. Control is an illusion that is fed with self-confidence. My generation is this weird test subject in a culture that said, hey, let's try telling people to be more self-confident. How's that going for us? Seriously. How's that going for us? You can draw a straight line from Peter taking out the sword and trying to chop dude's ear off all the way back to that self-confident statement he makes to Jesus. Even if they all die, I will stand. Even if they all deny you, rather, I will stand. Peter was convinced that he would die for Jesus. He was not yet convinced he needed Jesus to die for him. Let's linger on that one for just a moment. You may be here convinced that all the things that you're going to do for Jesus, but perhaps you're not convinced of all that Christ has done for you. And that, my friend, will be the difference between pride that leads to death and humility that leads to life. 
All right. In the midst of all the commotion and the very human responses that I think every single one of us can associate with in some way or another, we see here in the garden one figure that stands out. As humanity is failing, we see Jesus prevailing. Jesus prevails. When everyone takes to their feet and runs away or lounges on their back and falls asleep or takes out the sword and tries to fight their way out of it, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is leaning in on his knees, leaning in to what's to come. First, he's remaining. What brings prevail? Remaining. See, this is what makes this scene here in the Garden of Gethsemane so remarkable. Because here at the center of the event is the only one present who actually knew what it was like to live above the very human experience of pain and suffering and distress. And yet here is the only one that chose not to avoid it, but to plunge himself into it for the sake of humanity. Seriously, if there was anyone in the entire universe that had the right to flee in this moment, it would be the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. But he stays. He remains. Now, some have taken his prayer and request to God that God would allow this cup to pass before him. If there's any other way, let this cup pass before, for, before me. Some have, have interpreted this as Jesus wavering from the plan. He's trying to escape from suffering. He's trying to avoid the challenge before him. But I think far from it, this is actually proof that Jesus, the divine son of God, is actually willingly entering into the full human experience of not only physical pain, but emotional turmoil and spiritual pain. What do we see here? We see here Jesus allowing himself to feel the ache, allowing himself to feel the sting, the distress, even the hell of our human experience as he's preparing to experience separation from the Father as heaven grows painfully quiet. Now there are some very strong words in this passage. If you've imagined a walk in the park, you're missing the point. Look at me in verses 33 through 34. Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to, de- even to death. These, these three words here, distressed, troubled, and sorrowful, describe an unsettling, devastating terror that is so intense that it's pressing him into the grave. We don't even have English words to describe the agony that he's experiencing. It is so bad that it's threatening to take his life before his appointed moment on the cross. Like Jesus is at risk of dying now because of the turmoil that is so heavy on him. Now it's fitting that this is taking place at the base of the Mount of Olives in a garden that's called Gethsemane, which is translated the oil press. This is where they would gather the olives from the Mount of Olive, bring them down, crush the olives, press them in the process of making oil. And then that oil, the first bit of that oil would be donated to the temple for temple worship as that sweet-smelling aroma of God. Jesus is under severe pressure. He's in the oil press. And he's not only feeling the pressures of death. He knew that death was coming. We all face death. 
But what I really believe is the pressing pressure right here is Jesus facing the cup. Let this cup pass before me. What does he mean by the cup? Well, we've, we've talked about this multiple times in the book of Mark. The cup was the Old Testament symbol of God's wrath and punishment poured out and reserved for evil and sin. The cup in the hand of God, the cup of justice that will be poured out on the nations against evil. This is how humanity will be saved from judgment and hell. This is how you will be saved. This is how I will be saved and reconciled to God. Jesus himself knew that he would have to drink of the cup of punishment for us. He, the sinless one, would be condemned to death, separated from God the Father, so that we, the sinners, the guilty, could be made alive and reunited to God. Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's abundance. Jesus knew that this was coming. This cup was passing before him. This is the pure agony that he's experiencing as he is staring into the furnace of hell that he's going to experience in just a matter of moments. The heat of the furnace is beginning to hurt. In fact, one of the other gospel writers, Luke, records this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The pressure is taking its toll. Again, Jesus is in the oil press. Listen to how uh, C.H. Spurgeon describes this moment. He says, Dearly beloved friends, if men suffer some frightful pain of mind, apparently the blood rushes to the heart. The cheeks are pale. A fainting fit comes on. The blood has gone inward as to nourish the inner man while passing through its trial. But see our Savior in his agony. Instead of his agony driving his blood to the heart to nourish himself, it drives it outward to cover the earth. The agony of Christ, inasmuch as it pours him out upon the ground, pictures the fullness of the offering which he made for men. Even in Christ's agony, he's thinking about us. The disciples flee from suffering. Jesus remains and he agonizes under it. Another key mark of prevailing that we see here is wrestling. That was intended to begin with an R, but it kind of sounds like it fits there. So, wrestling. When the scripture describes the agony of Jesus Christ, the word means a struggle for victory, to press in and fight. It's the necessary pain of prevail, the pain that leads to prevail. Now, there are, there, are, there are those scenes from crime dramas and crime TV shows where the investigator goes to a crime scene where someone's been taken, someone's been kidnapped, and they walk in and the furniture's thrown around and like the vase has fallen and broken and the TV's on the ground and that sort of thing. And the investigator says something like this, there was a sign of struggle. There's a sign of struggle. The gospel writers find the same evidence in the garden. Blood on the ground. Sweat and teardrops. Separate knee impressions all throughout the garden. Clearly, someone was struggling here. Clearly, someone was wrestling here. Friend, forget your footprints in the sand poem. 
look here and see the knee prints in the dirt with the blood and the sweat and the tears and find out how you were carried. It was on some tranquil beach. It was in the agony of the garden. Now, there's resisting God and there's wrestling with God, and we need to understand the difference. One is marked by hostility. Resisting God brings distance in the relationship. Wrestling is marked by intimacy. It brings nearness. To wrestle, you got to lay hold. One shakes the fist into the heavens with a rebellious and angry heart. The other lays hold of God like Jacob and the angel of the Lord in the book of Genesis and says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. One resists, one wrestles. The scripture describes uh, resisting God as failing, but the scriptures also described wrestling with God as prevailing. You want to to prevail in your life? You need to learn to wrestle. In fact, listen to how God describes, listen to how the word describes wrestling here in Genesis 32, the story of Jacob and the angel of the Lord. And he, the angel of the Lord, said to him, Jacob, hey, what's your name? He said, Jacob. That's what they call me. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have what? prevailed you wrestled and you prevailed you know what did not prevail my ipad siri okay here it goes it's back again thank you lord that would have been unfortunate (laughs) you want to prevail you got to learn to wrestle when the disciples are sleeping jesus is wrestling he's fighting a battle but this is a battle that's not one with a sword it's a battle one in prayer All right, one last mark of prevailing that we see here. Jesus is relinquishing control. You guys still with me? Okay, you know I was going to ask. One last key mark of prevailing is relinquishing control, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will, Father. And I believe this is the decisive victory of the garden. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, submission to God is prevailing. And I believe that this is where really the contrast between humanity and Jesus is seen most clearly. See, the Garden of Gethsemane is welcoming us into this scene to see something that the Apostle Paul later in scriptures will describe as, and we need our theological thinking caps for just a moment, that Jesus is the second and greater Adam that enters into the garden to face the test but does not fail, but prevails. Consider this with me. God tells Adam, obey me concerning this tree and you will live. And what does Adam do? He fails, he disobeys. Again, God tells Jesus, the second Adam, obey me concerning this tree, the cross, and many will live and Jesus obeys. Adam insists, let my will be done. Jesus insists, Father, your will be done. Adam hid from the presence of God in the garden. Jesus knelt in the presence of God in the garden. Adam tried to blame Eve for his sin. It was your woman that you gave me. Jesus says, I'll take the blame. I'll take the rap. 
Adam brought about sin and death for humanity. Jesus brings about forgiveness and life. Because of Adam, humanity was expelled from the garden. Here's the good news of the gospel. But through Jesus Christ, we're brought back in. We're welcomed home. And as we look at this contrast between humanity and Jesus, it's not hard to see the chasm between us and Jesus. There is a giant gap between where we are and where Jesus is. It's important to grasp. As we're looking at our human failure and we're looking at Jesus' prevailing, we, we may grow discouraged, but that's not the point. Mark is not showing us the contrast between humanity and Jesus to simply cause us to be discouraged. discouraged. He's showing us that chasm to show us our need for grace. That while human failure is illustrated here, it's very present all throughout these pages, there is hope found in the garden. Because as Jesus describes his disciples scattering and deserting him at his death, he says this this beautiful line here in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, after my resurrection, the scattered sheep will be reunited with their shepherd. The risen Jesus will seek those who failed him most, not to punish them, not to scold them, not to rub their nose in their failure, but to restore them. To restore them. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. I feed my sheep. For the three times you've denied me, I'll reiterate my love for you three times and restore you. Where humanity fails, Jesus prevails. But the good news of the gospel is it's not just by himself and for himself. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus prevails for us and now through faith in and through us. So that we can no longer be defined by our failure, but defined by Jesus' victory. So that we can live a life of prevail as well. You see, by the power of the risen Jesus, you can remain when you're tempted to flee. Through Jesus, you can stay awake in this life when everyone around you is sleeping. Through trusting in Jesus, you can break free from the pattern of selfishness that's been inherited by Adam and live into the perfect record of righteousness and obedience that has been offered to us as a gift of grace. Friend, your story does not have to end like Mark chapter 14. Your story does not need to end like it's going right now. Maybe you're killing it in life. Maybe everything you are doing is working well for you. Maybe so far you haven't had any snags. Everything that you've attempted to do, you fulfilled, and you're, you're, you're the successful person, and you don't need any help. But for the rest of us, and I'm probably not alone, and I'm assuming you're here because you're not that person either. For the rest of us who recognize that we only perpetuate the same worn-out patterns of our humanity, This is good news, that Jesus has entered into humanity to set us free. There's a new story waiting for us in him, in him. 
And so the invitation of the gospel today is break free from Adam and trust in the second and greater Adam who didn't say, my will be done, but your will be done so that we too could say, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. Amen.